0: Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown.
1: I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and this is part two of our interview with Dr. Emily Wong, Internal Medicine and Integrative Medicine Specialist and Health Coach for Women Who Care for People with Dementia. In the first part of our interview, we talked about risk factors for dementia and how we can reduce our risk by reviewing our lifestyle choices and modifying areas like sleep, exercise, and stress. We also talked about how important self care is, especially for caregivers, which so many of us are. Now, don't worry if you haven't listened to the first part yet, but I do highly recommend going back when you can. Our conversation continues with a deeper dive into causes of dementia. The roles of genes and hormones, and when and where to seek help. Let's take a moment to talk about dementia. Dementia is a general term for the impaired ability to remember and think or make decisions that interfere with doing everyday activities. Dementia can be caused by a number of underlying conditions, but Alzheimer's accounts for 60 to 80%, so about two thirds or three quarters of all dementia cases. Alzheimer's is characterized by an abnormal buildup of proteins in and around brain cells or neurons. One of the proteins involved is called amyloid, and this amyloid can form plaques around those neurons. The other protein is called tau, which can form tangles within the brain cells. These are called neurofibrillary tangles. Vascular dementia is the second most common cause of dementia. It's caused by reduced blood flow to the brain, which can damage and eventually kill brain cells. I asked Dr. Wong if the damage from blocked blood vessels in the brain is similar to the damage caused to the heart in the same way.
2: So it's hard to say. I mean, we don't know for sure right now. Um, Here's the things that we do know. We know that Alzheimer's does not exist by itself very often. In fact, the brain scientists and the pathologists, if they see a brain that only has Alzheimer's changes in it, meaning the beta amyloid plaques and the tau neurofibrillary tangles, if they only see that. They actually call that a unicorn huh. because it's very rare that Alzheimer's changes exist alone in the brain. So the vast majority of the time, Alzheimer's coexists with some other conditions and by far and away, the most common condition that it coexists with is vascular changes, meaning changes in the blood vessels. So they may be large blood vessel plaques, you know, clogging of the arteries. There may be tiny arteries that are being clogged, right? And so what they're finding is that there may be multiple mechanisms where these two conditions actually coexist with each other and probably make each other worse. So for example, if we look at people who have a lot of that microvascular, very small vessel clogging, very small, you know, capillary clogging, what they see is that there's hypoxia or where the brain tissue is not getting enough oxygen, not getting enough glucose. And then that's when there's going to be buildup of amyloid beta plaque, where there's going to be buildup of the neurofibrillary tangles, where there's more inflammation And so it may be a both and situation. Mm -hmm. So the answer is that we know that there's some bad synergy that's going on there, but we can't have been able to tease out exactly whether they are completely independent of each other also.
1: While this may seem somewhat daunting, the good news is that this information provides us clues about how we might be able to reduce our own risk of dementia down the road by looking at our health behaviors and making healthier choices now.
2: So reducing risk factors, what we're finding is that we can improve the odds of getting dementia, of any individual getting dementia, if we can intervene with these lifestyle kind of behavioral choices up to two or three decades before the symptoms begin. So what we're now finding with early detection is that many of the changes that occur in the brain can occur up to two or three decades before the onset of the disease. So the analogy here would be heart disease, right? So before heart disease begins, before someone has a heart attack, before they even start having angina or chest pain, we know that if we look in the arteries in the heart, there's already some buildup of plaque. It may start out as something reversible, like a fatty streak, but then it becomes like a hardened artery, like concrete in a pipe, right? And so what we want to do is intervene at an earlier stage before um, that heart attack happens, or what we call, you know, like a stroke, which is a brain attack. Sure. Those risk factors for vascular dementia
1: include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. Obesity is also a risk factor, specifically the ratio of your waist to hip measurements.
2: So if you're more pear-shaped, you're less likely to be at risk for dementia. If you're more apple-shaped, meaning that you're Um, belly um, is going to be wider than your hips um, in terms of diameter, um, then you're going to have an increased risk, particularly in midlife, you're going to have an increased risk for dementia.
1: Determining one's risk of Alzheimer's is not easy. Certain genes can increase the risk of developing dementia. And one of the most significant genetic risk factors is a form of the gene called APOE4. About 25% of people carry one copy of APOE4 and two to 3% carry two copies. APOE4 is the strongest risk factor gene for Alzheimer's disease, though inheriting APOE4 does not mean a person will definitely develop the disease.
2: So, um, yeah, so coming back to this idea of, um, of Alzheimer's specific biomarkers, there's, there's two that I know of that seem to have some pretty good science behind them, although we haven't seen them be widely commercially available yet. One is the APOE4 um, genetic marker. So that is a um, gene marker and um, people can look to see if they have a family history, if they're more likely to get dementia. If you do test positive for ApoE4, it doesn't mean that you for sure will get dementia, but there is a, a high correlation statistically speaking, right? And so it means that you need to be more um, sort of vigilant about lifestyle risk factors. I have an APOE4 gene. Um, this is something that I'm interested in, right? Specifically, how do I protect my brain, even though I know that I have this genetic marker, right? So um, the other one is actually, um, you can test for um, beta amyloid levels in your blood. Now, that doesn't necessarily correlate to beta amyloid levels in the brain, but that is a blood test that's currently available, um, commercially available, I will say. And um, I would say the jury is out on whether or not that peripheral level of beta amyloid is going to lead to any kind of correlation with either personal risk or whether we can impact that level.
1: And going back to this correlation between potentially cardiovascular risk as well as dementia risk... So, we know that statins have been mm-hmm. very important in reducing cardiovascular risk, mm-hmm. as have medications such as metformin for diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, any data that shows that either of those two preventives can impact on our risk of dementia?
2: so far the mix, the results have been somewhat mixed um and also looking at very short time frames. So when we look at those medications that you mentioned, like either the statin or the diabetes medicine, whether it's the cholesterol medicine or diabetes medicine, what we do know is that um, there is an impact on what we call this displaced endpoint, meaning that it will bring your cholesterol down if you're taking cholesterol medicine, right? If you take a diabetes medicine, it will bring your blood sugar down. So we do know that. What we don't know is whether taking those medicines actually impact your risk of having dementia. We do know that it helps your risk. It it improves your risk of um, getting heart disease, but we haven't yet seen that data when it comes to your dementia risk.
1: Okay. And then given that women are more at risk and certainly with age, um, what's the correlation between that and our hormone levels?
2: So that's an excellent question. And I, yeah, and I don't know that we um, know the answer to that yet. Um, I would say that, um, you know, sort of the cutting edge research is currently suggesting that there is a period of vulnerability that women have in the sort of menopausal and perimenopausal transition and what we're seeing is that um, that dramatic drop in estrogen levels that we see or the fluctuations that we see um, during that time frame, actually do set us up for an increased risk for dementia, just like in heart disease, right? So if we look at the risk of heart disease between men and women, what we see is that there's a higher risk for heart disease for men all the way up until the point of the menopausal transition. And then after that, what we see is that the risk actually tracks together between men and women, somewhat in a more parallel fashion, suggesting that the hormones have a protective effect. And I would say that the um, in dementia, what we're seeing is that after the hormonal transition of menopause, the risk for women goes dramatically up. So after around the age of you know sort of sixty to sixty five, what we're seeing is that there is an increased risk for um, for dementia for women that goes up. Really, quite dramatically compared to men. Um, Lisa Moscone is um, the author of this book called The XX Brain. So, she works out of the Wild Cornell um, Medical Center. And I would say that um, that would be a book that's well worth reading. She does talk a little bit about sort of some of the hormonal risks and her suggestions for how to manage that.
1: And we'll put that in our notes. Thank you. So, you're probably wondering should I go on estrogen if I'm in perimenopause? The short answer is probably yes if you and your physician agree and you don't have any health issue where taking estrogen would not be recommended. But it wasn't always that way because in the 1990s, a large clinical trial called the Women's Health Initiative suggested that using estrogen could increase the risk of heart disease and breast cancer. So many physicians stopped prescribing what was called hormone replacement therapy for purely preventive reasons, meaning just to prevent disease such as heart disease and osteoporosis, for example. However, more recent analyses of the study suggest that the link between hormone therapy and cardiovascular disease
2: is all about timing. There have been a number of series of um, analyses that you know uh, where they've looked back at even the Women's Health Initiative, and other studies have come out where they've looked at hormones and the risk of cardiovascular disease. And what they're finding is that if we can confine that um, sort of hormonal uh, treatment to a period around nine years, um, after ten, nine to 10 years after the menopausal transition or during the perimenopausal transition, we're fine. Our problem is if we start can, or if we continue to give hormones past around the age of sixty-five, let's say, then we're actually running into more and more of a risk for cardiovascular, um, you know, adverse outcomes, whether it's stroke or whether it's um, heart disease. And do we know if there's
1: any impact with respect to progesterone, which is usually given if somebody has a uterus, if they're being given um, estrogen as well?
2: Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. So what we're seeing, what we have seen is that really there's different preparations of progesterone even that increase our risk versus don't, right? And so if we look, for example, at micronized progesterone, right, that there is a lower risk when it comes to these adverse outcomes, right? And so we don't know the answer when it comes to dementia, Um, sort of what's the best preparation, what's the best route of, you know, giving these medications orally versus transdermally. Um, These are all questions that are, you know, sort of being pondered and researched as we speak.
1: So So I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit and say, why don't we have these answers? So uh, any thoughts about uh, women's health research
2: and what we need to do? Well, I would say... um, (laughs) You know, from what I've seen, it's been a um, really encouraging and uh, hopeful, sort of optimistic um, sort of time for me having been in women's health as long as you have. I would say that, um, you know, whereas it really wasn't even sort of on people's radar screens in the 90s, I would say that now, you know, there's just this um, new kind of generation of women and scientists and physicians who are very interested in this and are sort of, you know, advocating, agitating for um, this, this kind of research. And I would say that there's also more and more funding, which is um, really, you know, what it comes down to. So I think it's a very exciting time to be involved with brain health with um, women's brain health, uh, particularly.
1: Um, I like your optimism. So thank you for that. I then asked Dr. Wong how she would suggest we begin to take action for ourselves in order to address the risks we've been talking about.
2: So um, that's going to be a different answer for everyone, right? Um, I would say that um, for some people, it might be reassuring to actually see a specialist, um, you know, get some basic screening blood tests, you know, sort of understand what their risk factors are and start working on it, you know, sort of proactively. For other people, it may generate, you know, more fear and more anxiety to engage in that kind of behavior. And so it's going to be different for everyone. What I can say is that what you're already doing to take care of yourself, whatever your self-care is, even if it's brushing your teeth, even if it's taking a walk, you know, around the block, if it's, you know... Getting enough sleep, right? These are all things that will contribute to your brain health. These are all ways that we can take care of ourselves. And so there's no downside to really, you know, taking care of yourself. So I'll give you an example. I, um, oftentimes, you know, as internists, as internal medicine doctors, you and I have both had this experience, I'm sure. You see someone, let's say their cholesterol is a little high or their blood pressure is a little high, and you're kind of like, you know, you're kind of on the borderline, but I would encourage you to consider taking this medication either for your blood pressure or your, you know, statin, whatever. And a lot of times, you know, those patients will say, well, you know, I don't really want to take a medication for the rest of my life, you know. And so, um, you know, as an integrative medicine doctor, what I've been able to do is to offer them some other options. So for example, if you have high blood pressure, you might consider taking some magnesium as a supplement, right? If you have high cholesterol, you might consider doing some red rice, you know, that might be helpful as a supplement that can help you reduce your cholesterol. And when we think about this number on a sheet of paper that says your blood pressure is this or your cholesterol is this, it's not terribly compelling. It sort of feels like I'm treating this number on a piece of paper. I feel fine, Right. And so why should I have to do that? And what I'm learning with this brain health work is that when I think about it in terms of, oh, this could improve my brain health, this could reduce my risk of having tiny mini strokes going on in my brain that I don't even know about, it becomes all of a sudden a lot more compelling.
1: Um, You mentioned a couple of supplements. Where would someone get information? Um, about that if they don't have um, an integrative medicine uh, physician (laughs) handling.
2: So there's really two kinds of supplements that I would um, recommend. One are specifically, one group is specifically for brain health. And the other is um, sort of more general for things like blood pressure and so forth. Um, actually. So Lisa Moscone's book, I mentioned the um, XX experience She mentions a number of supplements. There's also a website called um, Alzheimer's universe, which is also out of the Well Cornell medicine group. Um, and uh, the, the head of the Alzheimer's prevention unit there, Richard Isaacson um, has developed a number of teaching videos and modules that um, you can go and, and learn all about sort of like, different lifestyle behaviors, how sleep impacts how exercise impacts our brain health. And um, what I love about that site is that um, not only does it talk about preventing dementia, but it really talks about optimizing your brain. So it's really kind of like how can our brains function better in the next 30, 40, 50 years, however long we want our you know, brains to be, our brain spans to go out for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same message, I think, as um, Sanjay Gupta you know, from um, CNN mm-hmm. um, wrote a book called Keep Sharp, and he's a neurosurgeon. And so um, he has a wonderful sort of um, book that also talks a lot about sort of supplements and lifestyle. And, and so that's another recommendation I would have.
1: So at what point should one begin to worry that they may have a problem with dementia or or Alzheimer's? You know, I think, again, um, some of us think, okay, I can't find my keys. You know, (laughs) what else is new? I can't find my car. Um, You know, at what point is it no longer just, you know, um, normal?
2: So, um, so the things that you just mentioned are extremely normal, right? So, so I would say almost a universal experience and what's funny about it is that for me, at least, you know, this would happen to me in my 30s, you know, like, especially when you're pregnant, exactly. and when you had your kids, you know, you can't remember anything, there's this mommy brain thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would say that, you know, at that age, we just didn't even worry that it could be dementia, because we were kind of like, well, it's just hormones and mommy brain, right? Absolutely. And now we get to this age, and we're just like, Oh, my God. You know, I must be getting it, right? And so I just want to suggest to you that that's your brain. So with your with my brain coaching hat on now, you know, it's like, okay, so your brain is making the same circumstance of like forgetting your keys or walking into a room and not remembering what you went in there for. You know, your brain is making it mean that there's something terrible happening in your brain when in fact, it's exactly the same thing as what happened to you when you were 30, right? And so um, that's just important to recognize that our brains can cause these emotions and that can affect our experience. And when we become very anxious that, oh my gosh, I must be developing dementia, right? Then actually that just keeps us more stuck in, I can't do anything about it. And therefore, you know, my life is going to be spiraling down right? Whereas if we can be onto ourselves, then our brains are of course going to have this negativity bias, of course going to have this sort of tendency to catastrophize, right? When things like that happen, right? Then what we try to do is normalize that for ourselves, right? So if we can be loving to ourselves in that moment, instead of you idiot, how did you forget again, right? Beating up on ourselves. It's like, it's okay, honey. Like just... Just like you would mom, your brain, (laughs) mom, your brain, right? It's okay, honey, we're going to figure it out. It's not a problem, right? This happens. This happens all the time. Yeah. To answer your question as to when we know it's a problem, right? The answer is you're probably not going to know when it's a problem, but you get to decide. So you get to decide when you're worried enough to take action about it and go and see a specialist about it or go and see a doctor about it right? But the more that you can educate yourself on this, the more that you can take action towards protecting your brain, right? The more of an, you know, you'll be coming from a more informed place when you make a decision whether or not you're going to take action on it.
1: And what if you see a loved one that you have a question about?
2: How might you approach that? Yeah. So great point. So usually when someone actually does have memory problems, it is going to come from a loved one. So it might be your child saying, mom, you forgot this again, or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in that position of where you're taking care of someone, or you're, you know, you're, you're worried about an elderly person, it's going to be the things that are part of their activities of daily living that you're going to be concerned with. So when they're no longer sort of like taking care of themselves in terms of personal hygiene, when they're no longer able to prepare a meal, when they're lost or wandering, or they um, leave their keys in the door, leave the stove on, when there's sort of a risk or danger to themselves or others, that's when we would recommend as clinicians that some action be taken. Uh, but certainly earlier than that, if the individual is concerned, and if it would reassure them, to know one way or the other, if there's something going on, or there's something potentially reversible, like it could be a vitamin B12 thing, right? It could be Mm a vitamin B12 deficiency. If there's something that could be potentially reversible, then we would want to, you know, just get some basic blood tests and just make sure um, it's not a thyroid issue, for example.
1: And that's really a good point. Not everything is dementia, correct? um, right? at, At first, or not everything is irreversible. Right. So that I guess the first stop would be to see a primary care physician, yes. whether it be an internist or a family practice um, yeah. physician. Um, and then I would assume just uh, work with that individual. Um, and perhaps the next step would be to uh, refer to a neurologist. Right. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, Dr. Emily Wong, thank you so much. And before we let you go, um, we always like to challenge our listeners with at least one, maybe two things that they can start doing today to optimize their brain health. So what would
2: be your suggestions? So uh, when I talk about fighting dementia, right, I usually have um, at least three things that I recommend, right? So one is to be curious, to learn more. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you clearly are interested in brain health and you can learn a whole lot more on uh, these resources that I've mentioned to you, these books and, and website, right? The second thing that I would encourage you to do is to be involved in some way, right? So when you're a caregiver, you're already involved in sort of fighting dementia because you're trying to take care of your loved one. Know that you can get support. Know that there are communities of caregivers out there and you don't have to do this alone. In fact, it's very important for you to develop this skill of asking for help because we often are not very good at that, right? We may perceive that as a weakness. We may perceive that as being needy in some way, right? You are not. You are actually helping yourself to be stronger and more powerful when you are able to be involved in a community. And then the third thing I'm going to say is to find a reason for yourself to do the exercise, to get the sleep, to eat healthy, to prioritize your self-care. For me, my most compelling why for why I'm doing this is actually my daughter, Erin. Right? So when I think about taking care of my grandmother who has dementia, right? She doesn't recognize me anymore. Right? She doesn't know who I am when I see her. She's teaching me how to love unconditionally, how to love someone who can't love you back how to love someone who doesn't even recognize you, right? So she's still teaching me at the age of 102. As much as I appreciate that, I never want my daughter, Erin, to go through that. Never want her to have to try and love me when I don't recognize her. That's my compelling why. Sorry to get emotional.
1: No, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise and skills. I am jealous of everyone who you are a brain coach for. (laughs) Um, But Dr. M. Wong, thank you again for being with us. Thanks
2: for the opportunity. What a wonderful conversation we've had. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So many takeaways from our two-part interview with Dr. Emily Wong, but here goes. While you can't change your genes, there are some things that you can do to protect your brain health. For example, vascular dementia causes blockages of blood vessels to the brain in a similar way that cardiovascular disease is a result of blockages of blood vessels in the heart. So, all the things that help prevent heart disease, controlling blood pressure, blood sugar and cholesterol, and avoiding smoking, can have an effect on your brain as well. You might consider it a twofer. Protecting your heart can also protect your brain. And you can't start too early. These changes start occurring two to three decades before symptoms appear. Timing is important, too, when we consider hormonal changes. The decrease in estrogen at menopause also increases the risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. Studies suggest that taking estrogen during the perimenopause transition can protect the brain. And just a reminder that there are many reasons for changes in cognition. Some are reversible, like a B12 deficiency or a thyroid problem. So if there's any concern, see your doctor so a thorough workup can determine the cause. Given that so many of us are caretakers, we need to first and foremost take charge of our own health if we want to be able to take care of others. An important way to do that is to focus on our lifestyle choices, including exercise, sleep, eating right, and reducing stress. And guess what? These areas are also key to our brain health. In fact, Dr. Wong uses the hashtag MomYourBrain to remind us to be as nurturing to our brain as we are to those we care for. Dr. Wong also gave us some great resources to check out for more information. We will include those in our podcast notes. So, what one action will you choose today to hashtag MomYourBrain and take charge of your health? Let us know on our website womencentered.com, where we have a forum on brain health. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today.
0: I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, instagram twitter and facebook this episode of beyond the paper gown was produced by patrick shambayati and dr mitzi crockover until next time stay healthy and centered